we're doing a series called Meals with Jesus, and uh, this is the final one in our series. And I'm just going to have an attempt to try and connect these two thoughts, church planting and the Lord's Supper, which is the final meal that Jesus left us with. He's one he said, remember, do this again and again. And uh, here's my attempt at it. So when Jesus came to earth, he didn't start a brand. He didn't start an organization. He started his church. And his church is a family. And organizations might have logos and structures and the, the things that define them are maybe a cool website or a, uh, or, or a marketing strategy or a logo or something. The thing that marks out the family of God are practices. It's the thing that you sort of spot about different families. They have certain ways of doing things. You know, there's two things that I think Christians all over the world, as far as I know, there's two things that Christians agree on in terms of practices that every Christian should do. And one of those is baptism. We agree about the time and place and stage and all those things, but baptism. And the other one is the Lord's Supper. And Jesus commanded both of these things. And when you think about it, they're both family moments. And uh, so baptism is, it's about joining the family of God. It's about being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's about becoming part of God's family. It's saying, God has saved me and brought me into his family. And the Lord's Supper is the family meal. It's the place where the family gathers. It's the place where we say, well, we're, we're all one body together, and we're all loved by Jesus, and all loved by our Father in heaven. And at the same time, this meal is both exclusive and inclusive. So unlike the other meals of Jesus that we've looked at, which have been Jesus hanging out with the sinner, saying, everybody in, come on, I want to eat with you. This meal, as we'll see in a moment, he seems to share it with just a few people who he really wants to share it with. Now, in that sense, it's exclusive, as baptism is. That's for believers. But inclusive in the sense that when people had these experiences of being baptized and eating the Lord's Supper and feeling like they were in the family of God, they went and told the whole world about it. And they said, if you become a disciple, if you become a follower of Jesus, you can do these wonderful things. You can get baptized and you can join in this family meal. So that's my attempt at it. So here's what God wants it to look like as we think about church planting and small groups to have baptism and the Lord's Supper celebrated all over Edinburgh and all over Scotland and all over the world as a celebration of his family. And may God do that more and more. Right, so we are going to look at Luke chapter 22. And uh, this, all these meals of Jesus we've looked at, I think, have been from Luke's gospel. And we're going to read from verse 7 to verse 27. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things, just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with me on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, but those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the great among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So let me ask you a question to think about. If you were to be invited to anybody's house for dinner, anybody in the world that you could choose, who would that be? How many of you chose, like, royalty or prime minister or first minister? Anybody? Yeah, one or two. Great. Um, anybody chose of somebody, like, a, a loved family member or, or a friend you haven't seen for a long time? Anybody? Yeah? And the rest of you chose what? Chefs. Chefs, Chefs okay. <laughs> and... and, and and clearly, um, many of us, it's December time and we're all peopled out. Too many social nights. It's like we don't want to go anywhere for dinner right now for the next month. We are doing fine. Hey, so here's the thing. Jesus, in verse 15, says this remarkable statement to his apostles. He says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Isn't that amazing that Jesus, unlike some of us perhaps who are maybe reluctant hosts at times, who think, oh, you know, have you ever had that experience where you think, oh, no, we've invited people around tonight. Oh, I've got a small group at our house tonight. Anybody ever feel that way? No, you're holier than me, obviously. <laughs> but here's the thing. we can find ourselves sometimes we're just busy, stretched. Jesus was at a moment of extreme pressure and stress in his life. In fact, it's on the eve of him being betrayed, of him being handed over, of him being tortured, and crucified for the sins of the world. He's about to be abandoned by his heavenly father on the cross. In this moment, when you or I would be like, don't talk to me, he says, you know what, I've been really looking forward to this meal. Isn't that amazing? In a few minutes' time, we're going to take the meal that we're teaching about today together, the bread and the cup. And here's a thought for us to take into that. Jesus is really looking forward to it. It's not just an act of remembrance. We'll come on to that. It's a meal in which God participates with us, and he's eagerly looking forward to being with us in this meal. 
Now, the Greek word for desire, it, uh, it, it's often a word that gets used negatively in the New Testament. And it's usually like the desires of the flesh, sinful desires, the things that, that all of us feel, the tugs towards things that we feel are wrong and sinful. Jesus uses it in the positive to talk about his desire to be with his loved disciples. Do you know, Jesus' desire for you is greater than any temptation or uh, desire for sin that you can ever face. His grace will always outmatch your desires. Your sin can no match, be no match for God's grace. Now, it says, verse 15, it says, this meal, it happened in the context of the Passover. In fact, it begins with the Passover meal, and then he brings it into what we now know as the Lord's Supper. I don't think it's one and the same thing. I think there's slightly separate things going on here, but it starts with the Passover. And in Exodus chapter 12, when Israel is miraculously delivered, the Jewish people are miraculously delivered from slavery in Egypt thousands of years earlier, This is what the instruction is to the Israelite men and women of that day. It says, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony, the Passover. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians, and the people bowed down and worshipped. So that was the story. Many of you will know it. The Jewish people were in captivity. Pharaoh had refused them to be released to go and worship. So plagues had come on Egypt, and the final plague was one of death coming to every household in Egypt. And God told the Jewish people, paint a lamb's blood over your doorposts and huddle inside your house, one or two households together. And when the destroying angel comes over Egypt, he'll see the blood and you will be safe. And he says, eat this meal in haste. That's why they had unleavened bread. There was no time for the yeast to rise because when it's time to go, it's time to go. Now, by the time Jesus came, this festival had developed and, went, and they would take cups of wine to symbolize the blood of the lamb whose blood had been put on the doorposts. So this meal, it was a covenant meal for God's people of Old Testament times, of Old Covenant times. They looked back, and within the meal that we look at today, there's a sense of looking back. There's looking back, there's looking forwards, and there's enjoying the moment in the present. We're going to look at those three things. So we're looking back to the past. It was a covenant meal, a reminder of their history. It was a reminder of the extreme lengths that God went to in order to set his people free. It was a reminder of God's protection and provision. They would eat bitter herbs as part of that ceremony to remind themselves of the bitterness that slavery had been. But also in the midst of that was the reminder that God was bigger and more miraculous than any bad experience that they could face. And even though they lived in a land in Jesus' day that was occupied by Romans, they would eat the herbs and they would say, God is our deliverer and he can deliver us. The bread would also remind them of the supernatural supply that God gave them in the wilderness on the desert floor that they had to collect one day at a time for 40 years. And God supernaturally fed his people. 
This daily bread was a reminder that God was to be trusted with their care and their food needs. It was a picture. The Passover was a picture. I don't know if any of you uh, have been on family holidays. It's likely that somebody took some pictures. And the likelihood is that the pictures actually help you remember what really happened. Or in some cases, if you're taking young children on family holidays, the, the, the pictures bring back happier memories than they really were at the time. See, pictures help us remember. And they were, to, they were given, God's people were given this Passover picture, acted out together. And these, uh, these, typically they would have four cups that they would drink, and it would take them through uh, the, the plagues, it would take them through the, the redemption that happened, and it would take them through thanksgiving. It would be like they were working through a timeline of what God had done for them. Not just the highs, but the lows as well. You know, any act of remembering is bound to bring back sometimes difficult things for us. But over in the midst of it all, we see the common thread of God's grace and his power at work in our lives. And we end with thanksgiving. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. This was a command God gave his people in Old Covenant times. He said, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations, to those who love him and keep his commandments. Fundamentally, it's a remembrance of God's faithfulness. Do you know, as believers, we're engrafted into the vine of Israel. That means that their history becomes ours. That means that you and I can say, thank you, Lord, you got us through the Red Sea. Thank you, Lord, you delivered us out of slavery. Their history becomes our history. God's faithfulness to them becomes his faithfulness on our journey too. But then Jesus turns futuristic. Did you see that when we read it? So uh, the next verse, it says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So having eaten the Passover and drunk the wine, Luke mentions these two different cups. One is presumably the last cup of the Passover meal. Having done that, he says, I'm not going to eat or drink this again until the kingdom of God comes. Which was a fascinating thing to say. Jesus is looking ahead to doing it again. You know, when's the best time to start planning your next meal? It's after you've just eaten a meal, isn't it? It's like, what should we have for the next one? Well, Jesus is looking forwards to the next Passover, and he's saying, actually, the next one I do is going to be an eternity. There's a big deal made in Luke's gospel that we just read about preparation. He sent the disciples ahead of time to prepare for the Passover. He said, look for the guy with a pot on his head, follow him, I've made arrangements. It would take about seven days to prepare for a Passover meal. They'd have to sweep the house clean of all the yeast because they weren't allowed to cook with yeast for the Passover. There was a big deal made about preparation. Anybody bought their Christmas turkey yet? Wow. Guys, haven't you heard there's a shortage this year? Get out there. Come on. No. Um, it, it took a, family meals take preparation, and the Passover took preparation. Now, I think it's interesting. As Jesus begins to talk about this future Passover... He's beginning a period of preparation for that to come to pass. If you were to look back at Isaiah chapter 25, 
At a low point in Israel's history, the prophet Isaiah prophesies about an end-time feast that will happen. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened in Jesus' day. It's futuristic. It's the same feast that Jesus is talking about. Read it in Isaiah 25. It says, On this mountain, the Lord God Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest of wines, On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This future Passover meal, do you see some of the differences? It's not for one people. It's not for the Jewish people. It's for who? All people. Wow. It's not no longer celebrating these sort of bitter herbs of remembering sad times of the past. There's an abundance of food. It's no longer wafer-thin bread that hasn't been cooked. It's an abundance of meat and every kind of food you could want. Don't worry, vegetarians. <laughs> it's not just the, remem- the Passover is a remembrance of God's awful judgment on the Egyptians for their for their refusal to listen to God. This new meal is not a remembrance of judgment, of death, but of death being swallowed up, the shroud over humanity, the the, the death that comes upon all people, it being swallowed up. Not a story of disgrace, but of comfort. Turn over to Revelation chapter 19. So that's what Isaiah saw. And this is what we're told about in Revelation as this same feast is kind of talked about again with slightly different imagery. Verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. There's quite a lot of different metaphors going on in that revelation. There's a Lamb. There's a bride of the lamb, and there's a bride who's wearing some clothes that aren't really clothes, but they're acts of righteousness given to her by somebody else. The the lamb, Revelation 5 will tell you, well, the lamb looking as if he's being slain, that's Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus. The bride is the picture of Jesus' church, and the clothes are the picture of the goodness and righteousness that has been given to her as a gift to make her an appropriate companion for Jesus for all eternity. And there's a party. Now, that future picture of the wedding and Isaiah's picture of preparations being made brilliantly mirrors either side what happens at the Lord's Supper. Because I guess probably most of us here have attended a wedding. Everyone here attended a wedding in their life at some point? Probably, or you will do, probably. There's two tear-jerking moments in a wedding. The first one, of course, is 
when the bride walks in. It's beautiful, isn't it? She looks more beautiful than she's ever looked. The second moment, it gets me every time, catches me by surprise. It's when the vows are made and one spouse says to the other, all that I am I give to you and all that I have I share with you. And it's fundamentally the biggest gift you can give to anybody. It's the gift of a person. All of me given to you. Let's come back to the Lord's Supper. Verse 19. He took bread, he gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do you see it? It's the commitment of a bridegroom saying, I'm giving you all of me. Who's he surrounded by? Twelve hairy fishermen from Galilee. It doesn't look like a bride. It doesn't look like what they will be, but these words spoken by Jesus transform them and will transform them into be the people that God has made them. In fact, Jesus takes the bread and the cup and he says, these are pictures. This is my body. And he says, it's broken for you. He's talking about the cross. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Talking about his blood that's shed on the cross. It's a picture. He himself doesn't seem to eat the bread or drink the cup. He says, you eat it and you drink it. Because for him, it's actually going to happen the next day on the cross when he sheds his blood. He gives himself fully to them. He could have said, here you go, I'm going to pass out some prayer journals. Here you go, here's a New Testament and Psalms. Everybody have one. Read one chapter in the morning, one chapter in the evening, and you'll be fine. Jesus says, I'm giving you myself. I'm giving you myself. That's what it means when we take communion together. We're celebrating that God gives himself. And it's not just another human being. It's God giving himself to us. Five things that this meal does for us in the present. I've borrowed these from uh, Tim Chester, Meals with Jesus, just because I thought they were brilliant. Um, he says, first of all, remember, do this meal remembering. Do this in remembrance of me. We probably all have alarm clocks. What do they remind us to do? To get up. We probably all have calendars that pop up notifications for birthdays and other events. What do they, do? they remind us. This meal reminds us of the cross of Jesus and what it achieved for us. It reminds us that sins were atoned for, that our sins are forgiven, that we've been acquitted before a holy God. It reminds us that we're born again, adopted as the children of God. It also reminds us, we haven't got into the verses about 
the, the argument about who was greatest that was going on and Jesus saying, no, no, serving is the greatest. It reminds us that our bread and butter as Christians is service and sacrifice. It's a reminder. It's a reminder to us, but covenant meals were often seen as remembrances to both parties. So somebody mentioned the rainbow earlier on. When God put a rainbow in the sky for Noah, God said, when I see the rainbow, I will remember my promise and I will never flood the earth. God doesn't need reminding. He's all knowing. But it's almost like the symbols of the covenant bring about something magnificent in the heart of God, direct to his people. When God sees you holding the bread and the wine, there's something about it that all of his covenantal love is directed towards you very specifically in that moment as he reminds himself and reminds you that you're forgiven, you're loved, that he's never going to let you be separated from his love in all eternity. It's a remembrance. Secondly, do it together. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, Because there is one loaf, we are many, because we are one body, for we all share in one loaf. Around the room, we have a deconstructed loaf of bread that we prepared earlier. But it's one body, it's one bread that we're sharing and celebrating. It's a way of saying that we're one family. The family that eats together stays together. It's one of the things that is part of our fundamental unity. In the Corinthian church, they messed up and they, they were trying to do too much all at once. And some people were eating loads at the meal and some people weren't eating enough. And Paul said, you know what, why do you all just eat at home? And then let's come together and let's have the Lord's Supper where we just have bread and wine. Let's make it equal. It's a beautiful equalizing moment. Do it together. Thirdly, do it reliant. Do it dependent. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Every meal we eat reminds us that we need food and we are dependent creatures. This meal that Jesus gave us reminds us that we are dependent on him for daily grace, like the Israelites were dependent in the manna in the wilderness. So we need him. We remind ourselves that we need the power of the cross every day. We need all the grace that he gives to us. We must pray, give us today our daily bread. Fourthly, do it active. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus didn't say, watch this meal. He didn't say, observe. He said, do it in remembrance of me. Verse 10, uh, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. And is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? We're not observers, we're participants. It's when we eat and drink, we become partakers. Eating and drinking are active, not passive. That's why it's called communion. It's the closest thing we can do. It's how we enact our union with Christ. Sometimes theologians, when you read commentaries, they, they get very lost in the, in the arguing against the, a formerly Catholic position, which is, does the bread and the wine really turn into the body and blood of Christ? A, a doctrine called transubstantiation. And they spend pages on this. And in doing so, they, they kind of come to the conclusion, well, no, it's just bread and wine. I, I agree with that. 
But then they can miss this point and undervalue this point that as we eat in the bread and the wine, we are genuinely communing with Almighty God. And it's becoming to us the body and the blood of Christ. It really, really is. It's amazing. Fifthly, and finally, do it again and again and again. 1 Corinthians 11. When you eat, whenever you eat this bread, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, repetition forms habits. Some habits are good, some habits are bad. This is a really good habit for Christians, to eat bread and drink wine and celebrate Holy Communion, because it reminds us of all the things we're meant to be as Christians and all that God's called us to be. You know, when I drive through Edinburgh now, I don't generally need the sat-nav because I know my way around. Why? Because I've done those routes a thousand times. Communion habitualizes beliefs that work out into our lives. Tim Chester said this, In a busy culture with people desperate to succeed, we practice in communion resting on the finished work of Christ. In a fragmented culture that is radically individualistic, we practice in communion belonging to one another. In a dissatisfied culture of constant striving, we practice in communion, receiving this world with joy as a gift from God. In a narcissistic culture of self-fulfillment, we practice in communion, joyous self-denial and service. In a proud culture of self-promotion, we practice in communion, humility and generosity. All these practices are habit-forming and so seep into the rest of our lives. We're going to just take a few moments to enjoy Jesus through this meal that he's given to us. I remember um, a couple of years ago when we were in one of those lockdowns and there was one of those sort of windows where you were allowed to meet with 15 people in your garden and uh, Julie invited the small group round and it was one of, it's probably one of our biggest memories from those couple of years because it felt like everybody came and we just had a meal together. In fact, the meal wasn't amazing, it was just pasta. And we had to sit outside, so it was going cold very quickly and we were huddled under blankets and all those things. But it was beautiful. We had this moment to gather and we were just full of thanksgiving and it was, we, there was such a buzz. And then I saw Julie just dash inside into the kitchen. I said, where are you going? She said, I'm going to get the bread and wine. And she brought it out. And it was just a beautiful moment of thanksgiving where spontaneously we just took the bread and we took the cup and we thanked God for all he was to us and all he'd given for us and all that this family in its microcosm in a small group represented. As we gather today, this is a a big gathering of 200 or so. I'd love us to still try and find a way of doing that together somehow. And I'd love us to give us a couple of options as we do this in a moment. We're just going to have a moment where we can come and take bread and juice from the stations here on my left or right. Uh, There's some up on the balcony as well. There's gluten-free bread at the back of the room. Please only go to that station if you're gluten-free. And uh, 
We'll have a moment where you can just go and grab some bread and juice. And if you're comfortable to do this, I'd love to invite you to get in a group of six or eight people and to just stand in where there's space and just take a couple of moments, maybe have a couple of people to just thank God for his provision in Jesus. And let's also pray that this wonderful gospel that has changed our lives so powerfully, let's pray that many, many more people, that this meal will be taken by many, many more people in these months to come as people come to know Jesus, as we take steps of faith and share the gospel with people. Now, if you don't feel comfortable being in a group or if, if you're in a place, and I just need to sit and be with God for a few moments, that's totally fine. Nobody's judging who does what. You'd be very comfortable to do what you want to do. But I just want to encourage you to take a few moments. We'll take five, five minutes or so to do this. So go for it. Stand up. Grab bread, wine. Form groups.